Welcome to Question Period. Hope you and your loved ones are doing well. I'm Evan Solomon. Happy Father's Day. Today on the program, racism in the commons. In a moment where everyone's demanding action, I look back and I saw that MP not only say no, but make eye contact with me and just kind of brush his hand, dismiss it. And in that moment, I got angry. I'll be honest, I got angry. But I'm sad now. Because why can't we act? Why can't we do something to save people's lives? We can do something. And why would someone say no to that? The leader of the NDP calls a block MP a racist after he denied unanimous consent on a motion about systemic racism in the RCMP. Was Mr. Singh wrong to call an MP out? And how should leaders deal with systemic racism in Canada? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us. And then, show me the money. Our government will be releasing an economic and fiscal snapshot. This will give Canadians a picture of where our economy is right now, how our response compares to that of other countries, and what we can expect for the months to come. On July 8th, the federal government will tell Canadians just how much total money they've spent in COVID relief in something called a fiscal snapshot. What exactly is that? Do Canadians need more details? The Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines weighs in on that and in the wake of espionage charges against two Canadians detained in China, should Canada ban Huawei from our 5G network? Then, international embarrassment? The C on the Security Council was never an end in itself. It was merely a mean to an end. Canada will continue to play a leadership role and continue to defend and promote our values and our principles around the world. Canada loses its bid for a temporary seat on the UN Security Council after five years and two million dollars spent lobbying the international community. What does that say about Justin Trudeau's global leadership? Does Canada need to do more to prove itself on the international stage, especially as the U.S. appears to be pulling back? The former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power, joins us. Then, the scrum weighs in on the big winners and losers in this past week's conservative leadership debate. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Systemic racism. The idea has long been politically charged, but in the last few weeks, it's played out on Canada's political stage in a very dramatic way. First, the RCMP commissioner denied there was systemic racism in the force. Then she reversed course and agreed, yes, there is systemic racism in the RCMP. At the conservative leadership debate on Thursday night, Peter McKay and Leslie Lewis agreed there is systemic racism in Canada, while Aaron O'Toole and Derek Sloan refused to acknowledge it. But when NDP leader Jagmeet Singh put forward a motion calling for the acknowledgement of systemic racism inside the RCMP and for some ways to stop it, it was denied unanimous consent. Why? One MP, the Bloc House leader Alain Therrien, refused to support it. He also allegedly made a flippant gesture that angered the NDP leader, who then called him a racist. Mr. Singh refused to retract that comment, and he was booted from the House. The Bloc leader, Yves-Francois Blanchet, is now demanding an apology from the NDP leader and said if he doesn't, Mr. Singh should face a severe penalty. Again, a key part of this story is why did an MP deny there is systemic racism? But no member of the Bloc would join us to defend that party's position or even explain it. But was Mr. Singh justified in calling an MP a racist? Let's find out. 
he joins us now. Mr. Singh, always good to have you back on our program. I hope you and the family are well. The block leader has asked you to apologize. You won't. Why not? This, this moment is, is, has never been about me. And, and certainly after what's happened, it's not about what happened to me and one MP. After taking the stand to fight systemic racism and trying to do something to push the Liberal government to actually act, the outpouring of love and response that I've received has basically been you've, been, you've captured the frustration that we feel. Indigenous leaders, chiefs have reached out, people have been saying, this is the pain that we feel, that why can't we fix this problem? And you captured that. Thank you so much for not apologizing for wanting to fight systemic racism. So at this point, to apologize would, would effectively betray all the people that now see themselves as mattering. Because for so long, it's exactly that. Racism sends this message that people don't matter, that you know your lives are being lost, that doesn't matter. And standing up, we're standing up for them, and I can't let those people down. You've said anyone who does not agree with the statement that there is systemic racism inside the RCMP is a racist. But look, the former commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, did... Or sorry, the current commissioner of the RCMP formally said there wasn't. Then she said, of course, she reversed course and she said it was. And now you've got Aaron O'Toole at the conservative debate on Thursday refusing to say that there's systemic racism in Canada. So by, by your own standard, would, say, Mr. O'Toole qualify as a racist? Well, I want to be very clear about this moment. And I don't think it's important for me to go out and name everyone who's a racist. That would take me pretty much forever and it wouldn't really get us anywhere. But this moment is very specific. It wasn't about um, you know, people saying things outside the House or people saying things in their own position and their own opinions. This is in a moment in the House where nearly every, not nearly, every other MP in that House agreed that this motion should go forward. The Speaker was about to pass it. One person stopped it, and this is a motion to acknowledge what the RCB Commission had already acknowledged. So again, it just was the House coming together to say, let's make it really clear it does exist, and here are some solutions. But in that context specifically, someone blocking that motion and blocking the opportunity to save some lives and to make some real change, that is racist. But no that's it. Okay, so, so this is a big word, and, and you know that, that when you call someone a racist, it's a very serious allegation. And even if many people agree with you that there's systemic racism in, in the RCMP, and I don't want to have that debate because it's, every time these acts happen, it seems like we go back to square one, and I don't think that's the point here. But... For example, in your motion, sir, you had ways to combat it. For example, uh, allocating funding to, to social services. But I don't know why Mr. Terrigan denied this. I have no idea. He won't talk, and we're trying to get him to talk. But as an example, let's say he said, look, I agree there's systemic racism, but I don't think we should be moving money away from the Mounties. I think we should be giving the money because rural police are chronically underfunded, and we should be giving them more resource. That's why I denied the unanimous consent on that motion. I didn't agree with what he was saying, and now suddenly I'm labeled a racist. Do you see why that with, with so little evidence, calling someone a racist can be perceived as well a little dangerous as well well one is the rcp has little impact on quebec it's a fully federally regulated policing service that has very little presence in quebec and if there is presence it's mostly for indigenous communities so it doesn't make any sense that that someone that represents just one province would would care about a federally regulated policing service that doesn't actually impact the day-to-day -day lives of any of his constituents the fact that he would oppose Something really basic. In the motion, we said, given what we've seen recently where people who needed a wellness check or people who needed a mental health check, people who called the police themselves, ended up being killed by the police, 
that it's pretty clear that we should we should be responding to a healthcare crisis with healthcare workers. So it shouldn't be the police that are responding. I can't imagine in this moment how anyone would would vote against that. But I also want to point out this wasn't about an opposition party. This was a motion to push the Liberal government and the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, to take action. I wouldn't have needed to bring this motion forward if Prime Minister Trudeau would have actually done something about the systemic racism instead of the nice words. And I acknowledge he said nice words, but we need to go beyond the words. They become empty if there's not action. Um, just last question on this. So in, in reflecting upon this, it's been a couple of days, you and I have had a series of conversations about this. Do you regret calling this particular MP a racist? And would you then use that term again if someone doesn't agree with something that you agree with? Uh, would you hesitate to use, call someone a racist in the House? Or would you say it's time that we, we, we can do that now? Well, broadly, I will never hesitate to call out systemic racism and to push for change on the specific, that's general. Specifically, that moment was very unique. And if that, if that moment was ever recreated where one person stopped a motion that was going to make a difference in the lives of people and collectively acknowledge the systemic racism going on, uh, that moment is so unique that I don't know if that moment would ever be repeated. If that exact moment is repeated, I wouldn't hesitate to do what sure. I did. But my goal isn't to label people racist. That's not gonna get us anywhere. In that moment, I think it was appropriate. But what I do want to do is I want to actually see changes. I want to see Prime Minister Trudeau back up his words. He said some nice things. I want to back. I want him to see him back that up and actually bring in the changes, the use of force review, the de-escalation prioritization, making sure we review the budget of the RCMP, the $10 million a day, and fund healthcare responses, not police responses to a healthcare crisis. I want to see those things happen, and that's where I'm putting my efforts. Let me just quickly switch to another topic. What do you make of Canada's failure to get a temporary seat on the UN Security Council? Uh, does it tell you anything about uh, Canada's foreign policy? Well, I certainly think it does signal that our foreign policy is not something that was, was supported by the world. They, they didn't think that, that we had what it took to be, on the, to be a member. Uh, I also want to point out, I believe Canada has had a rich history of being a force for peace and for justice in the world. And I was looking forward to us playing that role again. Uh, but clearly, our actions weren't good enough to reach that point. Uh, and, and I think we need to improve. I think we need to do a better job as a country. And I'm going to continue to push Prime Minister Trudeau to do a better job of, of standing up where it's important to stand up and calling out injustice where it is. Uh, just specifically, what what do you think, from a foreign policy point of view, Canada could have done differently that might have made a difference that, that we did not do? I think given the, the very troubling comments of President Trump and the, the, the unwillingness of Prime Minister Trudeau to call that out, I think that's something that's, that's glaring and, and obvious. People want to know that someone on the Security Council is willing to call out America or to, to, to criticize when American policies are not appropriate, when the prime minister or when the president says things that are that are incredibly dangerous. I think that might have been one specific thing, but I, I can't tell what the exact reasons are. All right. I really appreciate you joining us. Jagmeet Singh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming up next, the federal government is giving into opposition demands to provide Canadians with a fiscal update. Well, it's called a fiscal snapshot. What does it actually mean and how much has the government actually spent what about the revenues? The Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines joins us for that and lots more. Stay right here with Question Period.
if it would be uh, a little bit unrealistic to project much further than uh, than a few months because things are changing so rapidly. But uh, we're happy to continue to demonstrate the kind of transparency and accountability that Canadians expect and deserve. It's not a budget. It's not even a fiscal update. But the federal government will be releasing something called a fiscal snapshot. The figures on how much they've spent on the coronavirus relief since the pandemic started. Now, the parliamentary budget officer has predicted, with all the new spending, the deficit could be well over $250 billion. And just this week, the Prime Minister announced an eight-week extension to the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, the CERB that over 8 million Canadians have availed themselves of. How much does the government have left to spend, and just how bad is the economic outlook? Talk about that and more, the Innovation Minister Navdeep Baines joins us. Uh, great to have you here, and uh, I hope you and the family are well. Can you tell us what the difference is between a full fiscal update and a fiscal snapshot? It's a great question, uh, Evan, and I think context is important. We are in this unprecedented time dealing with this healthcare crisis, and therefore we recognize it's extremely difficult to project with any degree of certainty uh, long-term forecasts around GDP, for example. And so therefore, what we're doing is we're sharing with Canadians a snapshot, uh, looking at the different costs that we have incurred in light of, of the COVID-19 crisis, as well as how do we compare with other jurisdictions? And we want to be transparent with Canadians. And I think Canadians will look forward to those details that will be shared by the Minister of Finance on July the 8th. The only issue is that the PBO has repeatedly told me, Mr. Baines, that uh, he can do basically a fiscal update. And the government should be able to do one. It's urgent that they do so to get a, not only a sense of where we are today in a quote-unquote snapshot, but where we're going. We have unprecedented spending. And, and a lot of the critics of your government have said, you guys keep saying that you're so transparent. Look, just in the last week, you gave parliamentarians a grand total of four hours to analyze $87 billion uh, of spending. So is this enough oversight or is your government essentially skirting around the deficit size? Look, we, we know that we needed to make investments because we told Canadians to stay home. We said keep a social distance, uh, stay self-isolated. We basically essentially shut down the economy to save lives. And we know that comes at an enormous economic uh, expense and outcome. And we're going to share that information and share the different programs and measures we put in place to support Canadians through direct income support, uh, measures that we put in to support businesses through liquidity measures. And we're going to provide those details. We've been doing so on a regular basis. Evan, I've appeared before committees, uh, the industry committee to answer questions. I'm on a regular basis answering questions from parliamentarians, particularly the opposition, on some of the measures we put forward on Made in Canada initiatives. So we've been extremely transparent and engaged in the political process. And on a daily basis, the prime minister is out there every single day answering questions but, but so related respectfully, to the expenses and related to the investments that we've made. Respectfully, it's not that you guys haven't been talking about it, but let me just give you an example on the $87 billion, okay? Parliamentarians had four hours. It was either accepted or not. Under normal parliamentary procedures, which your government has not decided to institute, there would be a standing committee that would be able to analyze that. That committee could make suggestions. They couldn't spend more money, but they could certainly spend less money. That kind of rigor, they could call witnesses. That kind of rigorous oversight is not there. Again, we are in an unprecedented spending moment. Uh, there are people that are worried about what will happen in the next 10 years because of this spending. Why not just go the extra mile, 
put a full fiscal update there. And if you have to redo it again, do another fiscal update. Why not? Canadians know that the situation is incredibly dynamic and fluid. Uh, that if we try to make predictions three months from now or six months out uh, going out, uh, the, the, we don't know where the, uh, the, the second wave or third wave may emerge uh, within Canada or globally and the impact that will have on the Canadian economy. We're a trading nation. We depend on other countries as well. So the point I'm making, uh, Evan, is there's so many different elements at play. Right. And what we uh -huh. need to do with Canadians is be incredibly transparent and share with them the information that we have and be upfront and clear with them about the kinds of investments we're going to continue to make. Really, the, the core issue here is, did the measures that we put forward save Canadian lives? And we believe they did. And how do we compare with other jurisdictions? Those are the two key elements that we will be sharing uh, coming out of the snapshot. Minister, I've got to talk, ask you about China. They've now charged the two Michael Spavor and Kovrig with espionage. They're clearly sending a message in the wake of the Canadian judge's decision to let the case against Huawei exec among ones will proceed. You're the Minister of Industry. Uh, a lot of folks are saying we got, we got to do something. Uh, what we've been doing is not working. There should be Magnitsky sanctions. Maybe we've got to, they've put sanctions on our goods. What will Canada do to respond to this that may be necessary to save the lives of those two Canadians? You're absolutely right, Evan. This is extremely disappointing, the recent developments that have occurred. Uh, we've been uh, engaged on this file. Uh, we've been applying a lot of pressure. Uh, and we're going to continue to advocate for their immediate release. Uh, some people in Canada talk about the 5G decision, uh, the decision that I'm responsible for in terms of making sure that we protect Canadians' safety and security. Uh, bottom line is we will do whatever it takes to make sure we uh, get those Canadians home back safe. Okay, but let me, just pre let me just press because you guys have been doing a lot and nothing's worked. Let's just get, get specific. Other countries have said no to Huawei is 5G. This is right in your wheelhouse, sir. When will Canada make a decision on 5G and Huawei? And given what's happening, how could Canada accept Huawei as part of our 5G? So the rollout of this 5G technology needs to be done in a safe and secure way. We engage with the allies. I work very closely with the telecommunications sector. I also engage and work very closely with the national security experts as well. And one thing I want to tell Canadians, that we never have and never will compromise on national security. And we will make a decision when it's in our best interest. And we will do so by doing the appropriate due diligence and doing the homework. We're not going to be bullied or pressured by any country. Okay, but when? when? They're clearly bullying and pressuring Canada. I, I, people have been waiting for years. Every other country in the, fi in the five eyes has made their decision. But Canada, what is holding you back? Look, we're an independent, sovereign country. We will decide on, on, our, on our own terms when we want to move forward and proceed with this decision. And we will share that with Canadians. But make no mistake, Evan, when it comes to the safety and security of Canadians, that's going to be the central deciding component of how we move forward on rolling out 5G. Okay, let me just ask you one last question. Do you, as the Minister of Industry do you, and Innovation, do you believe that Huawei is an instrument of Chinese foreign policy? Clearly, they are applying pressure, uh, and they recognize that they need to get ahead of this technology. Uh, and this is, in the geopolitical context, a very important issue. And there are many factors that we're taking into consideration. So I work very closely with Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs. I work closely with Bill Blair, uh, the Minister responsible for public safety. So this is not simply a decision for me, but it's a whole of government decision. And we're going to look at all the relevant aspects. But bottom line is, this is about keeping Canadians safe and secure, and that will guide our decision.
I got to leave it there today. Minister Baines, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me. And happy Father's Day. Coming uh, up. Thank you so much, Evan. Was Canada's failure to win a temporary seat on the UN Security Council a rebuke of Justin Trudeau's leadership or foreign policy? Should Canada be doing more to contribute to the international community? We'll speak with the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Samantha Power joins us with her view on that. Stay right here with Question Period. We decided to throw our hat in the ring because we saw a unique opportunity to engage with our partners across the UN, build sustainable peace, and make real progress on issues that matter. And that's what we've gotten to do during this campaign. Canada is back. Well, that was Justin Trudeau's motto when he was first elected back in 2015. And a pillar of proof, he promised, would be when he wins a seat on the... Uh, UN Security Council as a non-permanent member, something that the Harper government failed to do back in 2010. Well, that promise has just turned to ash after Canada lost its bid to Norway and Ireland. They gained only 108 votes. The Harper government, by the way, won 114. Now, the government spent five years and $2 million lobbying hard for a spot at the table. Is this a rebuke of Justin Trudeau's global leadership or Canada's place in the world? Did his rhetoric match reality? To talk about that and lots more, we are now joined by the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and most recently the author of a, her memoir, The Education of an Idealist, Samantha Power. Great to have you on the program, and I hope you're all well and your family's well in this COVID crisis, Samantha. What, you know, we're all trying to compute the, why Canada would not get this seat. I know you have Irish roots, so congratulations to Ireland on that. What does it mean for Canada's position in the world, Samantha? Well, first let me say that if Ireland had obtained one fewer vote in the first round, Canada and Ireland would have been duking it out in the second round and anything could have happened. I think Canada's biggest liability in this race was that Ireland entered in 2005, Norway entered in 2007, and Prime Minister Trudeau entered when he took power in 2016. So that's a big head start. I think Canada's strongest arguments uh, related to the kinds of commitments Prime Minister Trudeau has made, particularly in the area of refugee resettlement, where Canada is leading the world at this point now that the U.S. has pulled back, uh, his commitments on climate change, and recently really stepping up on the coronavirus when the U.S. has uh, vacated leadership, uh, being one of the middle powers to show that it doesn't require being a superpower uh, to look out for the needs of people in developing countries whose fates fundamentally are going to affect the fates of Canadian citizens when it comes to a pandemic. Although we have, for example, boots on the ground and peacekeeping, we're at all-time lows, and even uh, help in foreign development. Th those have not, the rhetoric has not matched the reality. But there's been a big debate here about whether it's even important. Does this matter? Lots of criticism. The United Nations is essentially now useless. Uh, the Security Council's got uh, China and Russia on it. They're obstreperous and obstructive on certain things. Why is it important for a middle power like Canada? What is the relevance of having a seat on the, or even a, a non-permanent seat on the Security Council? The very fact that U.S.-China tensions now uh, have uh, spiraled with the pandemic and are likely to get worse before they get better really carves out a niche uh, for middle powers to take leadership, again, along the lines of what Canada, Germany, France, and others have shown uh, in the pandemic as it relates to vaccines, along the lines of which when I was on the Security Council, countries like Australia and Luxembourg 
showed when it related to Syria humanitarian issues with, with Russia and the U.S. at loggerheads, it required middle powers stepping up and kind of breaking the tie. So you'd be surprised what middle powers can get done. But more broadly, with the Security Council perhaps likely more gridlocked in the years ahead than it has been since the end of the Cold War, I think we're going to have to look for democracies establishing networks and kind of informal coalitions outside the Security Council. And my major message, if I, if I had the ear of, of people in high places in Canada, would be keep doing what you're doing, keep leading. Don't lead just for the sake of a Security Council campaign, uh, but take that um, show on the road and, and recognize that the kind of leadership that Trudeau tried to show in, in the, over the last few years in, because it was intrinsically important, but also because it would help Canada get a Security Council seat, is precisely uh, the kind of leadership that democracies and middle powers are going to have to show uh, in light of the U.S.-China standoff. Let, let's talk, you've said a number of times uh, the, uni, the U.S. under Donald Trump has retreated from the world stage. You've said openly in a series of interviews that they've bungled the response to COVID. These all have kind of consequential political and geopolitical con uh, consequences here. Uh, talk about that. I mean, has the U.S. permanently retreated from the world stage? And what, what is the consequence of that? And how has the COVID situation accelerated maybe the shifting sands going on right now? When I was U.S. ambassador to the U.N., um, a number of Latin American ambassadors uh, said to me at different occasions, when America sneezes, we catch a cold. <laughs> and um, certainly that was true in the disastrous U.S. invasion of Iraq and the cascading consequences across the Middle East uh, and elsewhere. It is true when the U.S. pulls out of the World Health Organization at the height of a global pandemic. That means fewer resources are going to be dedicated to helping countries in, in the developing world who are being overrun now by the pandemic. Whether this is a permanent condition or a, a feature of Trump's presidency uh, from which we will recover, uh, hopefully as soon as January 20th, 2021, um, it, it, I, I think uh, it will depend in part on whether Vice President Biden um, and others who believe in an engaged America uh, distinguish globalization that has hurt American workers, the kind of buyer's remorse that people have had just opening borders and being insufficiently attentive to the fate of American workers from political globalization and the recognition that most major threats cross borders, whether climate, cyber, terrorists, or pandemics, uh, the political globalization requires the strengthening of political institutions, political coalitions, political networks. And that's something that every American and every Canadian has an interest in seeing happen. But I, again, I think right now there's a temptation in some circles to throw baby out with bathwater. The pandemic is going to accentuate that temptation because there are going to be fewer resources uh, to deal with more problems. And so the world is going to seem uglier and scarier, perhaps. Uh, but there's just no question as an objective matter, as you know, uh, that, for example, on the pandemic, the U.S. economy cannot recover while the pandemic is raging in even distant corners of the world. Our, our supply chains, our trade relationships, our family ties. Um, so the interconnectedness ship has sailed, uh, but we need to do uh, to be more persuasive and to reinvest in convincing the American people that those investments are worth it.
Man, lots to discuss. Got to leave it there, though. Samantha Power, great to have you on the program. Take good care of yourself. Thanks, Evan. All right, coming up next, the four remaining contenders for the Conservative leadership race sparred in both official languages in two key debates this week. How did they perform? We'll not get into the French. That wasn't exactly stellar. Which candidate should claim debate victory? The scrum is next. Special guest uh, Adrian Batra will join us and CTV pollster Nick Nanos as well. Stay right here with Question Period. It's time for a true blue conservative who can win the next election and get our country back on track. I'm supported by conservatives across the country. Social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, new voters, new Canadians, en anglais et en français. We need a leader who attacks liberals, not conservatives. I will never give an inch to political correctness. I won't cede an ounce of our sovereignty to international organizations. I'm the only candidate that is committed to defunding the World Health Organization and getting Canada out of the Paris Agreement. I am the right leader with the right policies at the right time. I am the leader that can withstand the illiberal attacks and the lies about who we are as Canadians. So who has the big momentum now after a crucial week in the Conservative leadership race where the four remaining candidates, the final four, faced each other face-to-face, -face, one in French, one in English. Has the race shifted? Leslie Lewis, Derek Sloan, Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, given just two nights to hammer home their platforms and convince party members to choose them as the next leader. But in a race that's been, frankly, largely overshadowed by the COVID-19 pandemic, did anybody stand out? Did the four, none of whom are bilingual, make any inroads, say, in Quebec? Was there a clear winner? Let's bring in the scrum to sort all that out. Molly Thomas is a reporter with CTV News. She's in Ottawa. Our special guests in this round are Adrian Batra, the editor-in-chief for the Toronto Sun, and our CTV pollster and the president and CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos. Nick, obviously the strategy's involved here, right? Peter McKay needs to win on the first ballot. Aaron O'Toole hopes to survive to the second ballot, and he wants down-ballot support from the two other social conservatives. But wh what did you make of what they're trying to do, and, and particularly in Quebec, where it's, it's bloody hard to win a majority in this country without Quebec, and none of them are bilingual. What's your take on all that, Nick? Well, you know what? There's a, there's a lesson from the last uh, leadership conference convention, Evan, and it had to do with Maxime Bernier, who was the front runner. Everyone thought he was going to win, and whammo, he didn't win. So Peter O'Toole, Peter McKay, has to look <laughs> over his shoulder, so to speak. Uh, mm. Yeah, Peter O'Toole. Maybe that's going to be the winner. How yeah. that, uh, for the, uh, for the, <laughs> but Peter has to be uh, has to be careful in terms of being the front runner and having to deliver. But the fact of the matter is, we have to think of this whole leadership convention as jumper cables, jumper cables on the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement. Because right now they're not as relevant as they have been. Their polling numbers are down. They need to have a leader. They need to delineate themselves from the Liberals, and they have to put forth a vision that is different that captures the imagination of Canadians. And basically, we haven't seen that because right now they're fighting for the base. Molly, what did you make of the debates? What stood out? You know, Evan, I was waiting for that wow moment, that moment that we all come into the office the next morning and, and talk to each other because of that one moment. It just wasn't there. To me, it fell flat. A lot of times, most of the candidates were agreeing or, or nodding off to the other person, mm -hmm. telling them, hey, I agree with you. 
people want to see who uh, differentiates themselves, who puts themselves forward with, with interesting policies and platforms. The one thing I thought was most interesting was after the debate when um, the candidates were fielding questions, I thought Peter McKay actually handled himself probably the most prime ministerial in terms of uh, being willing to engage with the questions, answer the questions that were put in front of him. And he even pointed out and said, mm -hmm. yes, there is systemic racism in our country, something that Aaron O'Toole wasn't willing uh, to, to use those exact words. And I want to get to that. But real quick, uh, Adrian, mm -hmm. are social conservatives, and there's two of them in the final four, uh, are mm -hmm. they kingmakers and has their power uh, ascended? I know they, they were very critical in getting Andrew Scheer elected in that final ballot, mm -hmm. but now for that party that always says we don't want to talk about social conservative issues, we don't want to talk about abortion, LGBTQ issues, those are settled. They're clearly not if these debates are any indication. Are social conservatives kingmakers? No, I don't think so. Not this time around, because I don't think that um, Sloan or Lewis have enough of a um, groundswell of support in order to overtake um, either uh, Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay. I still maintain that this is Peter McKay's to lose um, in, in terms of the performance and sort of where the party wants to see itself moving. And that is along a Peter McKay type of progressive conservative right. uh, leadership. And I think that that's important. But I would only other say with respect to the Quebec question, you know, there's things that the Conservatives can connect with, uh, with Quebecers. Look, they, they believe in some fiscal Conservative policies. If they can target and look at those sorts of things, um, I think we can look perhaps beyond the ability to connect with them um, on a language basis perfectly. But if you are capable and competent enough to connect with them on other issues as well, that, that's what matters. Uh, Nick, just weigh in quickly on that social Conservative issue and how that plays out in the polls. Yeah, I wouldn't say that uh, social conservative candidates, but social conservative voters within the conservative party are a big force. You can't win the party without them. You have to think of conservative party members, conservative voters, and Canadians, and it's a wide spectrum. Right now, the conservative party is more likely to be influenced by socially conservative members, and that's why the front runners are looking to try to appeal to them. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, if you're from Quebec, it's thin gruel. When you saw that debate, you know, it was probably pretty tough for a lot of Quebecers to watch. If you're from the West, you know what? You've run this party, Andrew Scheer and Stephen Harper, for the last decade. What do you see now? An Atlantic Canadian, an Ontarian, right? Where there's no real Western representation in this race. So the party has to be very careful. It's going to have to unite after this in order to challenge the Liberals right now. Uh, Molly, we talked a bit about systemic racism. It was a question all the Conservative candidates were asked. But we just had Jagmeet Singh on the show, the leader of the NDP, who called out a Bloc Quebecois MP, he said, you're racist because you did not support unanimous, you did not give unanimous consent for a motion on acknowledging systemic racism in the RCMP and some things to do about it. What do you make of that? Uh, he's, he's unapologetic and he won't uh, back down from calling him a racist. H how did you see that? You know, I don't, I don't think he should apologize. I think if he does, then he's part of a system that rewards ignorance. Listen, this block MP, the reason that he had said he didn't support this was because he wanted to figure out if there's systemic racism in the RCMP. Listen, commission after commission has already told us that. The RCMP themselves have backtracked and said they are learning around this issue and need to look at it differently. Uh, Canadians across this country are sharing their racialized stories, and somehow you still need to figure that out. What that does for me is that it, it keeps the status quo in place. It may be subtle racism but that's what systemic racism is in our country it's subtle it's nice it doesn't seem like it's that far he shouldn't apologize if anyone should have been kicked out of that uh out of the house it should have been the black mp uh even jugby singh is arguing that if you disagree with emotion acknowledging systemic racism and uh the rcp you're essentially you are a racist that's what he said what do you make of that 
Well, I think that's where it gets tricky is because just there's a lot of politics involved here. I think that the RCMP has a lot of work to do with, you know, I'm from out West. We've seen um, year time after time, story after story where the RCMP has been uh, treated the uh, Aboriginal community, the Indigenous community, just uh, abysmally. But I think that, you know, you need to, this is a our parliament. We we debate potentially going to war. We debate um, you know sexism. We debate the big policy issues that are facing Canadians. We should debate this as well. And I think that um, I think the manner by which the Bloc MP was so dismissive, like even just the body language. Um, though you know, there's very little I agree with the Jagmeet Singh on in terms of his po- um, policies, the NDP. Um, but just that frustration for someone who's dealt with it, lived with it, existed with racism, overt racism all of his life, to be so outwardly dismissed, to not even want to have the conversation. I, you know, I think that that was frustrating. But those are our rules right now. Him being asked to be kicked hmm. out—that's the manner by which we live under these uh, parliamentary rules. Until we change that, it will happen again. All right, got to leave it there, guys. An important discussion, and we'll keep having it. Adrian Batra, Nick Nanos, thanks for joining us. Molly is going to stick around because coming up next, China charges those two Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, with espionage. How should Canada hit back? The Scrum will break that down next, and our special guest will be former NDP leader and now CTV political commentator Tom Mulcair. Stay right here with Question Period. continue uh, to uh, ask the Chinese uh, and put pressure on the Chinese government to uh, cease the arbitrary detention of these two uh, Canadian citizens who are being held uh, for no other reason than they are. Uh, the Chinese government is uh, disappointed with uh, the independent proceedings of the Canadian judiciary. China hits back in what appears to be a retaliation for a Canadian judge's decision to let the extradition case against Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou proceed. China has now charged the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, with espionage. Remember, these two Canadians have been held in prison in China with the lights on for 24 hours a day, no access to legal counsel for months, barely any consular visits, no reading material. And the conviction rate in China, by the way, is about 99.9%. So how should Canada respond? To talk about that and the upcoming fiscal snapshot on July 8th, whatever that means, the Scrum is back. Molly Thomas is back. And joining us for this round, Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. And our special guest is the former NDP leader and current CTV political commentator, Tom Mulcair. Tom and Joyce, welcome. Molly, welcome back. Tom, how should Canada respond to these charges that have just been laid against the two Michaels. We should react diplomatically as strongly as possible, but we know that this is tit for tat for Meng Wanzhou and her being held by Canada, in my view, illegally. If you look at the general provisions of our Extradition Act and the specific provisions of our treaty with the United States, it's quite clear that if it's political, you're not allowed to hold the person. Mr. Trump made it clear that it's political when he said he could let her go, even though it's Canada that's holding her, if he got the trade deal that he wanted. So it's obviously political. I think that Mr. Trudeau at this stage is just probably saying prayers so that the judge eventually rules that she can go back to China, everyone gets to save face, and the two Michaels are allowed back home, Evan. Uh, Joyce, what do you make? Some are saying, and the opposition has certainly said, that 
Justin Trudeau's too soft on China. So what, what, is, what do you make of that? Is it time for, uh, some have called for Magnitsky-style sanctions against the Chinese? And why not? I mean, look, diplomacy has failed so far, and we know that. Um, uh, th th we know that the foreign affairs minister has tried to talk to his counterpart. The prime minister has tried to talk to his counterpart. Nothing is working. So there are many things that Canada could do. Um, Chinese student visas, for instance, that's one thing that was suggested to me because we've been having these conversations, as you know, Evan, uh, for, what, uh, 500 days or, or, or more that these two men have been arbitrarily detained in China. So there are things. Uh, but probably um, continuing to uh, go to the allies because that's what they've done and, the and remind the Chinese that these are arbitrary detentions. Uh, but there is really, you know, not a lot that Canada can do uh, as a power on its own. That is probably Justin Trudeau's biggest problem and right. would be uh, the biggest problem of a conservative prime minister as well. It's not because it's a liberal prime minister that he's having these problems. It's because it's right. Canada uh, that we are having these problems and that we don't have such a strong voice with China who will continue probably to punish Canada on uh, trade issues as well. Uh, Molly, what, what does this say about Canada's foreign policy? Uh, and, and, and what Canada may have to shift, if anything, some have said again, Trudeau is just too soft on China. Yeah, I mean, Trudeau came out and is saying, you know, we will continue with public and private means. That's just not good enough. These men have been in uh, solitary confinement for more than 550 days. They haven't seen their lawyers for months. And these are Canadians that are sitting uh, under charges now, which generally lead to some kind of a conviction in China. This is scary. And I agree with Joyce. Uh, we cannot do this alone. This is the power of the allyship needs to come through. We need to rely heavily and go to the U.S. And, and, and hopefully they will back us here. We need to have the allies come together. Um, to make a strong stance against China, but we will never be able to do that alone, and so we need to get a game, a game plan together right now. Uh, Tom, let me just switch over. After weeks of hammering by the opposition, um, there has been finally a fiscal update. Well, not a fiscal update. They're calling it a fiscal snapshot amidst hundreds of billions of dollars of spending mass unemployment. They're going to release this fiscal snapshot on on July 8th. Now, I asked the finance minister, Bill Morneau, to explain what that was. He said it's a picture of the economy, but without any forecasting. The parliamentary budget officer said it's not good enough. They should do a full fiscal update. How consequential is this? How needed is a full fiscal update? Well, it's essential in our parliamentary democracy. The number one thing that the elected officials get to do is to determine the spending of the government. And how can you look at that if you don't know how much is being spent, Evan? So it's basic. I think Mr. Trudeau's playing a tricky game here. He knows he's not being transparent. The parliamentary budget officer is right. He said the other day, hey, if I can give these figures, of course the government can give even more information. But Mr. Trudeau is doing everything he can to keep his field open if he decides to go to an early election. He, we, we're going to see Peter McKay get elected as head of the Conservatives. Nobody amongst the opposition parties was, was spoiling for a fight. They just want things to stay the way they are. But Mr. Trudeau, of course, can pull the plug whenever he wants. I think that'll be next spring. But he's keeping all his options open. And the less said about the monumental deficit that we're racking up, the better in Mr. Trudeau's liberals' view. Hmm. But it is going to be hundreds of billions of dollars. On Friday, Quebec said it's $15 billion deficit, whereas they were in surplus. So if it's that way in one province, you can just imagine what we're heading for federally. And the public's got a right to know it. Uh, Joyce, is a fiscal snapshot enough? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I find this, uh, all this is, is semantics, snapshot, update, give me a break, you know, basically. 
Um, you know, he says it's unrealistic to give you a fiscal update because it includes projections for a year, three years, five years. That's not what we're asking him. It would be sort of like what he's saying is, well, I can't go running with a friend because I haven't been in the Olympics. Nobody's asking you to go to the Olympics. We're just asking you how much. That's the question that Canadians want to know. How much and how are you going to pay it back? And if you can't give us five-year projections, everybody understands that in this particular context. But you can if the, pro if the PBO can do it. And we've been saying this uh, for a while. Why can't the government do it? They've got a whole finance department. And, uh, and, and I can tell you for having spoken to these people, they're really smart people. Um, and they could give us something of an update just for transparency's sake. Yeah, and Molly, just so people know, this is going to do revenues and spending to give a snapshot. But, you know, when you're budgeting, you do need some kind of projection because a lot of people are demanding, what's the plan to get out of this thing after maybe the crisis ends? What's your take on this? Absolutely. I mean, they need to put something out there, even if they need to update that. Again, that's what a fiscal update is. People expect that things are going to change. And as we have so many unknowns about COVID, Obviously, that's going to change. I think Canadians have grace for that. However, you know, it looks like the pressure is working. Listen, months, you know, the last few weeks and months, we've been asking for some kind of a fiscal update anything and the prime minister has diverted away from that consistently so i think the pressure of the questions of canadians being concerned about this and the pbo actually putting out real numbers that make canadians be like okay well what is the government saying about this puts the pressure on the prime minister to at least give us a snapshot hopefully the next time it's a fiscal update john just before i let you go you did mention earlier in our conversation you're predicting peter mckay is going to win the crown uh in the conservative race after watching two debates just real quick your assessment of that debate now there was a french language debate it's hard to win a majority without going through Quebec. Did they make any inroads in Quebec? What's been the, uh, the view there? Both McKay and O'Toole have passable French. O'Toole's capable of formulating maybe a more complex idea than Mr. McKay, but he stuck to his script. He got through it okay. The other two don't speak French, and they're not in the race, but not because of that. I think that Mr. McKay performed so well in the English language debate last, uh, uh, last Thursday that it's going to be clear to conservative voters that he is the person who might be able to take on Justin Trudeau's liberals in the next election. Mr. O'Toole is going to be ready maybe sometime in the future. He'll never regret having made his, his effort at it. But it's quite clear between the two, in my view, Evan, that Mr. McKay has got this one. All right, guys, i got to leave it there. It's fascinating stuff. Tom Mulcair, Joyce Napier, Molly Thomas, great to have all of you here. By the way, Tom, happy Father's Day. And to all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. Enjoy this moment to my beautiful father who gave me my passion for political news and journalism happy father's day i love you dad we will be back here in seven short days and make sure you join us at 5 p.m eastern tomorrow for power play on ctv news channel take good care